0: I want to read uh, Matthew twenty six thirty six through 44. Um, you can be seated. Uh, the verses on the screens, you can follow along or grab your Bible. Then Jesus went with them to the olive grove called Gethsemane. And he said, sit here a while, while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and Zebedee's two sons, James and John, and he became anguished and distressed. He told them, my soul is crushed with grief to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. He went a little farther and bowed with his face on the ground, praying, My father, if it is possible, let this cup of suffering be taken away from me. Yet I want your will to be done and not mine. He then returned to the disciples and found them asleep. He said to Peter, couldn't you watch with me even one hour? Keep watch and pray, so that you will not give in to temptation, for the spirit is willing, but the body is weak. Then Jesus left them a second time and prayed, My Father, if this cup cannot be taken away unless I drink it, your will be done. Then he returned to them again and found them sleeping, for they couldn't keep their eyes open. So he went to pray a third time, saying the same things. Then the people who had arrested Jesus led him to the home of Caiaphas, the high priest, where the teachers of the religious laws and the elders had gathered. Meanwhile, Peter followed him at a distance and came to the high priest's courtyard. He went in and sat with the guards and waited to see how it would all end. Inside, the leading priest and the entire high council were trying to find witnesses who would lie about Jesus so they could put him to death. But even though they found many who agreed to give false witness, they could not use anyone's testimony. Finally, two men came forward who declared, This man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. Then the high priest stood up and said to Jesus, Well, aren't you going to answer these charges? What do you have to say for yourself? But Jesus remained silent. Then the high priest said to him, I demand in the name of the living God, tell us if you are the Messiah, the son of God. Jesus replied, you have said it. And in the future, you will see the son of man seated in the place of power at God's right hand and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothes to show his horror and said, blasphemy. Why do we need any other witnesses? You have heard this blasphemy. What is your verdict? Guilty, they shouted. He deserves to die. Then they began to spit in Jesus' face and beat him with their fists. And some slapped him, jerking, prophesy to us, you Messiah, who hit you that time?
1: Then the entire council took Jesus to Pilate, the Roman governor. They began to state their case. This man has been leading our people astray by telling them not to pay their taxes to the Roman government and by claiming that he is the Messiah, a king. So Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus replied, you have said it. Pilate turned to the leading priests and to the crowd and said, I find nothing wrong with this man. Then they became insistent. But he is causing riots by his teachings wherever he goes, all over Judea, from Galilee to Jerusalem. Oh, he's a Galilean, Pilate asked. When they said that he was, Pilate sent him to Herod Antipas because Galilee was under Herod's jurisdiction, and Herod happened to be in Jerusalem at that time. Herod was delighted at the opportunity to see Jesus because he had heard about him and had been hoping for a long time to see him perform a miracle. He asked Jesus question after question, but Jesus refused to answer. Meanwhile, the leading priests and the teachers of religious law stood there shouting their accusations. Then Herod and his soldiers began mocking and ridiculing Jesus. Finally, they put a royal robe on him and sent him back to Pilate. Herod and Pilate, who had been enemies before, became friends that day. Then Pilate had Jesus flogged with a lead-tipped whip. The soldiers wove a crown of thorns and put it on his head, And they put a purple robe on him. Hail, king of Jews, they mocked as they slapped him across the face. Pilate went outside again and said to the people, I'm going to bring him out to you now, but understand clearly that I find him not guilty. Then Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. And Pilate said, look, here is the man.
2: When they saw him, the leading priests and temple guards began shouting, Crucify him! Crucify him! Take him yourselves and crucify him, Pilate said. I find him not guilty. The Jewish leaders replied, By our law, he ought to die because he called himself the Son of God. When Pilate heard this, he was more frightened than ever. He took Jesus back into the headquarters again and asked him, Where are you from? But Jesus gave no answer. Why don't you talk to me, Pilate demanded. Don't you realize that I have the power to release you or crucify you? Then Jesus said, You would have no power over me at all unless it were given to you from above. So the one who handed me over to you has the greater sin. Then Pilate tried to release him, but the Jewish Jewish leaders shouted, If you release this man, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who declares himself a king is a rebel against Caesar. When they said this, Pilate brought Jesus out to them again. Then Pilate sat down on the judgment seat on the platform that is called the stone pavement, in Hebrew, Gabbatha. It was about noon on the day of preparation for the Passover, And Pilate said to the people, Look, here is your king. Away with him, they yelled. Away with him, crucify him. What? Crucify your king? Pilate asked. We have no king but Caesar, the leading priests shouted back. Then Pilate turned Jesus over to them to be crucified. Along the way, they came across a man named Simon, who was from Cyrene. And the soldiers forced him to carry Jesus' cross. And they went out to a place called Golgotha, which means Place of the Skull. The soldiers gave Jesus wine mixed with bitter gall, but when he had tasted it, he refused to drink it. After they had nailed him to the cross, the soldiers gambled for his clothes by throwing dice. Then they sat around and kept guard as he hung there. A sign was fastened above Jesus' head announcing the charge against him. It read, This is Jesus, King of the Jews. Two revolutionaries were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. One of the criminals hanging beside him scoffed, So you're the Messiah, are you? Prove it by saving yourself, and us too while you're at it. But the other criminal protested, Don't you fear God even when you have been sentenced to die? We deserve to die for our crimes, but this man... Hasn't done anything wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus replied, I assure you, today you will be with me in paradise.
3: The people passing by shouted abuse, shaking their heads in mockery. Look at you now, they yelled at him. You said you were going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Well, then if you are the son of God, save yourself and come down from the cross. The leading priests, the teachers of religious law, and the elders also mocked Jesus. He saved others, they scoffed, but he can't save himself. So he is the king of Israel, is he? Let him come down from the cross right now, and we will believe in him. He trusted God, so let him rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I am the son of God. At noon, darkness fell across the whole land until three o'clock. And at about three o'clock, Jesus called out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, which means, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Some of the bystanders misunderstood and thought he was calling for the prophet Elijah. One of them ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, holding it up to him on a reed stick so he could drink. But the rest said, wait, let's see whether Elijah comes to save him. Then Jesus shouted out again, and he released his spirit. At that moment, the curtain in the sanctuary of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook, the rocks split apart, and the tombs opened. The bodies of many godly men and women who have died were raised from the dead. They left the cemetery after Jesus' resurrection, went into the holy city of Jerusalem, and appeared to many people. The Roman officer and the other soldiers at the crucifixion were terrified by the earthquake and all that had happened. They said, this man truly was the the Son of God. Standing near the cross where Jesus' mother and his mother's sister Mary and Mary Magdalene, When Jesus saw his mother standing there beside the disciple he loved, he said to her, Dear woman, here is your son. And he said this to the disciple, Here is your mother. And from then on, this disciple took her into his home. Jesus knew that his mission was now finished, and to fulfill scripture, he said, I am thirsty. A jar of sour wine was sitting there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put it on a hyssop branch, and held it up to his lips. When Jesus had tasted it, he said, It is finished. Then he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. It was the day of preparation and the Jewish leaders didn't want the bodies hanging there the next day, which was the Sabbath, and a very special Sabbath because it was the Passover week. So they asked Pilate to hasten their deaths by ordering that their legs be broken. Then their bodies could be taken down, so the soldiers came and broke the legs of the two men crucified with Jesus. But when they came to Jesus, they saw that he was already dead, so they didn't break his legs. One of the soldiers, however, pierced his side with a spear, and immediately blood and water flowed out. This report is from an eyewitness giving an accurate account. He speaks the truth so that you may also continue to believe. These things happened in fulfillment of the scriptures that say, "...not one of his bones will be broken." And they will look on the one they have pierced. Afterwards, Joseph of Arimathea, who had been a secret disciple of Jesus because he feared the Jewish leaders, asked Pilate for permission to take Jesus' body down. When Pilate gave permission, Joseph came and took the body away. With him came Nicodemus, the man who had come to Jesus at night. He brought about 75 pounds of perfumed ointment made from myrrh and aloes. Following Jewish burial custom, they wrapped Jesus' body with the spices and long sheets of linen cloth. The place of crucifixion was near a garden where there was a new tomb never used before. And so because it was the day of preparation for the Jewish Passover, and since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus
0: there.
4: You have just heard from five men that I have come to adore. Pastor Rod Collins, Jim Garcia, Sean Lynn, Andrew Hernandez, and Michael Thompson. I've served in a lot of churches and experienced a lot of life ministerially. But I have to tell you This has been the happiest stage of my journey. It's a delight to serve at the sanctuary. And you people have become more and more dear to me. And I'm so privileged to be able to stand up here tonight and have a little conversation with you about the narrative you just heard. God is so highly organized, is He not? He gave us four witnesses. Their accounts differ a bit, and that's as it should be. They didn't get together and make up their story. Each one told their story as they understood it. Now, let me see if I can expand on it a little bit. I like to walk. And uh, so during the good uh, months when the weather's uh, warm, I typically will walk uh, 15 to 20 miles a week but when it gets cold, I'm not so courageous. and The days get shorter, and it's just hard to find time to get out there, but really it's about motivation. So about three weeks ago, I went on a three-mile walk from my house. I live in Chapman Heights. I journeyed over to the wash, you know, there that runs up uh, by the fire station up on Bryant Street, and I like to go up through the wash. I, come, I turn north on Bryant Street and then turn back west on Oak Glen. At the corner or the intersection of Oak Glen and uh, Sunnyside, leaning up against the light post, I saw a shrine or a memorial. Now, it was a little shocking because you just don't come up on those in an ordinary walk. But there it was. The cross was about, oh, I'd say 15, 18 inches high. Maybe the crossbar, something like that. My eyes are not all that good. So I got down on my knees because I wanted to read what was written on the cross. So you had the standard R I P Rest in Pieces in Peace. And then S A M. So I assume this to be a man, and his name is Sam. Around this little memorial were some dead flowers and then some plastic flowers. Got down on my knees because on the light post itself, there was a message written, and I wanted to read it. I felt like I was reading somebody else's mail, but my curiosity got the best of me. What what was the message? And so it was obviously, obviously someone who loves Sam. And my powers of deduction uh, led me to believe that there were more than just one someone who loved Sam. And that apparently a group of people had brought tributes to this side where apparently there was a fatal accident and there Sam died. You've seen them. We see them, frankly, on the side of the road. But this one just simply startled me, I think because I never expected to see one there. I got to thinking, and it brings me to what we've just read about, because Good Friday is really about the cross, isn't it? It's about the cross upon which Jesus died. The Apostle Paul, when you read his writings and his letters, you'll find that over and over and over again, he makes reference to the cross— Paul laid a foundation for us to understand that our redemption rests upon the death of the Lord Jesus Christ, who was given up as a ransom, as an atoning sacrifice, not for his sins, but for ours. But also, we celebrate in just a couple of days, triumphantly, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, for Paul, faith, the Christian faith, was built upon two facts. The God who came in human form was offered upon Calvary's cross as a ransom for your sins and for mine. But he was so holy and so pure that you could kill him but he wouldn't stay dead and on the third day Jesus arose from the dead so paul writing this singular verse in the first chapter in the 18th verse of first corinthians writes this for the mass message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing but to us who are being saved it is the power of god I, I kind of want to parse this a bit. I saw this little memorial. There was a message there. It was certainly to the people who placed the memorial there, very important. There was emotion attached to it. It meant a great deal to them. But that little cross only represents a, a small group of people. But the message that the Apostle Paul is writing relates to billions of people, and it's a message that stands for all eternity. So I think it's important that we parse it. What does this message have to say? And I'd like to suggest to you four things that I believe that the cross speaks to us. I believe the message of the cross is troubling. It's extremely troubling because of what it exposes. It is interesting to me, as the men were reading, that the name Herod comes up. Pilate comes up. The priestly caste comes up. The priestly caste in Jesus' day despised the Roman government. They despised Pilate. Pilate and Herod did not get along. There was conflict over and over again. But they coalesce and put to death an innocent man. There's another thing that you see in this text that I just think is so critical when you parse out the cross and its message. It's that the crowd prefers Barabbas over Jesus. In our men's Bible study this last Thursday, uh, Tom uh, Baum, who is a, really a, an excellent uh, biblical scholar, was sharing with us about the name Barabbas. And it kind of piqued my interest, so I went on the Internet to see if I could discover something else. The prefects, bar— means son of. And Abras means father. We read in the Scriptures that we begin with Spirit, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. In fact, in Gethsemane, Jesus was crying out, Abba, Father. So there's an interesting contrast here. The full name for Barabbas is Jesus Barabbas. Jesus, son of. Now, it's interesting to me that the mob stirred up almost to a riot. They cry out for Jesus, son of, Barabbas, a criminal, a felon. He'd broken all the laws. And it's stunning that they rejected Jesus, the Son of God. I don't know if we've gotten too far from that today. It is apparent to me that in Jesus you have a forgiving heart. You have the one who did nothing wrong, who always did what was right. And yet you have this conspiracy that puts Jesus to death. And I wonder about our day and our time and our call. We are called to be the holy people of God. We are sanctified. We are set apart for his purpose. You see, those religious leaders in Christ's day, they were steeped in the law. They were steeped in the Scriptures. They crossed all the T's and they dotted all the I's. But their hearts were not right with God. And because their hearts were not right with God, God visited them. Jesus came to His own and they received him not. They rejected the king of glory. And I wonder sometimes in this 21st century in which we live, is there not at times a spirit of compromise? Do we sometimes get entangled with this secular world, this materialistic age? And our, our faith, our calling is kind of put on the back burner I think it's an imperative at this late date that once again God's people call hear hear the call and heed the call to be his holy people which means we need to evaluate we need to think our lives through we need to ask ourselves this question is there something troubling about my life have I made some wrong choices How do I make those choices right again? Second observation. Message of the cross. It's not just troubling. It is traumatic. By that I mean what it inflicts. I have some personal experience with trauma. 2011 they found a spot on my liver. And because I had recovered from colon cancer, when the oncologist said, I I see a spot there, I've been in this business too long. And my assumption was, yeah, I already know what that is. took them a year to find out that it really was cancer. Probably the most traumatic day of my life was to arrive at UCLA Med Center at four o'clock in the morning. Had to get there, everybody checks in at the same time for surgery. And they whisked me off into a, a little room with a curtain around it and put on the hospital gown. And I am really anxious. I just, we just need to get this over with. Uh, don't make me wait. And then it's backed up, and it's backed up, and it's backed up, and it's backed up, and it's backed up. (laughs) Finally, at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, and I've been there since 4 in the morning, they come in, and they give me a shot, and I go out. Have have you ever gone through surgery and and started to count, seeing how long it will be before you're out? I barely get the thought in my head, and I'm out. <laughs> and so that was the case. The next thing, you know, I wake up. I'm in intensive care. And the doctor comes in, and the news is not all that good. He says, Mr. Williams, the mass is so large on the right side of your liver that we can't remove it. Be a very optimistic man. He says, you know, the liver has an ability to, to grow, to replace itself. He said, this is what I've done. He said, I've shut off the blood supply from the, uh, uh, the portal vein to the infected side of the liver. And he says, if this works the way I think it will, and that's not all that encouraging... He says your liver should grow. Two months later, same process. God did a wonderful thing. The liver grew, and it grew. And I went through the same surgery again. Now, I have to tell you this I don't like morphine. I, I know that it keeps you from hurting, but they give you that little button. And I just kept pushing and pushing and pushing it every time I had the slightest pain. But then I started having visions. And these little creatures are in my face. They're kind of leering at me, snarling at me. Decided I decided then I didn't want to do drugs. But that was enough. I dreaded going to sleep because of that. It was months and months and months of recuperation. Now, I think about my trauma in light of the trauma that Jesus would experience. From day one, he understood his mission. At 12 years of age, he was conversing with the religious leaders. And the parents Got concerned because they lost Jesus. How would you like to lose the Son of God? Uh, you know, I, I just think that's just sheer panic. And they find him. And I don't think Jesus was ever, uh, ever a sassy teenager, although he was 12. He, yeah, well, mom, didn't you know where I'd be? Didn't you know I'd be in my father's house? So there was a recognition in Jesus very early on of His destiny. John 12. Jesus cries out. And He says something to this effect. My, my soul is in travail, for I know My hour has come. Shall I say, Father, save Me from this hour? He answers his own question. He says, no, it was for this purpose that I have come. And so with his face set, he joins with the disciples on that last night of the supper. He tells them that one of them is a betrayer. He tells them that another one will deny him we know from the testimony of Scripture that on the day of the crucifixion, the disciples ran away. There is Jesus, fully human, fully uh, uh, capacitated as we are. The Scripture teaches us we do not have a high priest who cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities But we have a high priest who in all ways has been tempted as we are. And I don't care what your pain is, what sorrow you care, care, carry. Jesus knows all about that. And Jesus is seated at the right hand of the majesty on high, and He intercedes for you. He bears your burden in heaven, and there's comfort in that. Today has been a very sad day. And yet, on the other hand, we got some good news tonight. There's a fabulous verse of scripture that I came across two days ago in Isaiah 62. And Isaiah writes to the watchman on the wall, and he says to the watchman on the wall, pray. Don't, don't rest, but pray. And then <laughs> it says of God, give him no rest. And so when I heard this sad news, it was about Ron and Kay Cleaver. I went to Sunday school with Kay. Knew her sister and her family and her parents. She married Ron Cleaver, wonderful pastors and leaders, four square denomination. Their daughter's name is Rhonda. And I'm assuming Rhonda's in her mid-40s. But something went terribly wrong. And she had some seizures. And then two heart attacks. And then she went into a coma. So they intubate her to keep her alive. The sad news this morning was They're going to take her off the life support because she's not going to make it. Maybe it's because my kids are in that age bracket. I don't know why. Maybe it's just I'm a model and crybaby at this age. (laughs) I used to think I was tough. I'm a cream puff. And I'm telling you, I hurt for people, and I hurt for those people. I thought if that was my son... That was my daughter. Break my heart. And day before yesterday, Anita had sent them this message from Isaiah. And just before I came tonight, we got some good news. We got some good news. She was starting to revive a little bit. There's hope. There's hope. And so what I'd like you to see that Though the message of the cross is a troubling one, it's also a traumatic one. In addition to that, it is a triumphant one. Now, think this through with me. What did Rome, what did those Jewish leaders want to achieve through the cross? And what did they use it for? Well, we know a surgeon can take a scalpel and do wonders but a street thug can take a knife and do terrible things. And so the cross in the hands of one becomes an instrument of death and destruction. But in the hands of Almighty God, it becomes an instrument of life. And so, on this cross, those earthly folks that are Antichrist and all of the demons of hell and the devil himself think, aha, we have won the battle. We've killed God. Well, you know, we're going to show up here on Sunday, aren't you? Can we count on that? We're going to show up here. And why will we come? He is alive. He is alive. Think about this. The Bible says that the wages of sin is death. It says that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The Bible also teaches that He was bruised for our iniquities, and the chastisement of our peace was upon Him, and by His stripes we are healed the atoning sacrifices on the cross. My friend Bob English years ago wrote a track, and you may be aware of this track. It's been around a long time. It's called Bridging the Gap. And this is what Bridging the Gap pictures. It's a, it's a, a precipice on this side, a precipice on that side, in this vast chasm between the two. And here's sinful man, and here is holy God. How does sinful man get to holy God? The cross spans the chasm. And Jesus suspended on the cross becomes the way, the truth, and the life. And no man comes to the Father but by Him. Jesus gave His life for you and me. Because of our sinfulness, death was really our sentence. But the Son of God took our sentence for us. He bore our shame, our guilt, to the cross. It is triumphant. But even greater than that, the message from the cross is this. It's a transforming message. Think about what happened. Two criminals alongside of Jesus, start out the afternoon joining in the the scoffing and the scorning that's coming from others. If you be the Son of God, if you're the King, come down from the cross and bring us with 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 you. I don't know what happens, but I suppose it might be the darkened sky from noon until three o'clock. It might be bolts of lightning and the roar of and the clap of thunder. I don't know. But I know the earth shakes. And even though Jesus feels abandoned by God, it seems like that the Father is enduring the pain of Jesus Christ right alongside of Him. But somehow or another, Jesus emotionally cannot connect with that. And I know this. I don't know about you, but I know about, about myself. That when I'm really stressed out, when I'm really under the gun, it just seems like God's nowhere to be found. It seems like I've lost His phone number. I don't know how to contact Him. I truly feel abandoned. But it's not true. Jesus said... Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Jesus was not abandoned by the Father, but it sure felt that way. But even as Jesus was dying, something remarkable is happening. For the one thief says to the other thief, one criminal to the other criminal, he says, don't don't talk that way. Don't talk that way. We deserve this. We're the lawbreakers. But this man, he's done nothing. And then he turns to Jesus and he says, would you remember me when you come into your kingdom? And the response of Jesus is this, today, 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 hallelujah, today you will be with me in paradise. Fantastic, marvelous, wonderful grace. But that's not all. That's not all. Those battle worn Roman soldiers standing there, they observe all of this, and they get what the religious folks didn't get. The centurion says, as does the other soldiers, surely this was the Son of God. Incredible. Transforming. The cross. On Mondays and Tuesdays, uh, Anita works, and so I'm the cook. I'm not real skillful at it, but I can do some things that are edible. And I have found an easy way to do things, and that is to utilize the barbecue. Then I can use paper plates and tinfoil, and I can throw that all away, because I don't especially like cleaning up the mess. But I have done chicken to death. Do you ever get tired of chicken? So, I thought, well, I want to do something special. And I got into the... I went in the drawer there where Anita keeps the cookbooks, and I pulled out a a little binder like this. And that binder is about 50 years old. And that binder is about 50 years old. So, some of the pages and the leaves are coming out. And... uh, I'm thumbing through it and I'm looking like, well, maybe I could do a chicken casserole of some sort just for variety's sake. But my eyes drift away from the recipes to the names. And there is Phyllis Searcy, Bobby Tyndall, Doris Groom. There's Dodie Young and Carol Kennedy. Lola Brenham, a whole list of names from my history, from my past. And those were all parishioners in our church back in the 60s and 70s and early 80s. These were women who really devoted themselves as Christ followers. There was a sadness to it. And that many of those ladies are now in the our way. They've died. They've gone on. They're They're no longer here. But then there was a happiness to it because they're in the presence of the Lord. But it just conjured up in my mind how marvelous is the transforming power of the cross. And sinners like you and like me when we come to the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, when we take up our crosses and follow Him, we are transformed. We are molded and shaped into His likeness, and the process has, begun, has That God has begun is going to be perfected. It will be brought to full completion when He appears. And so tonight, I think it was most fitting that we would spend a little time at the communion table, that we would commemorate once again the sacrifice of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so you know the story well by now. It says that on the night that Jesus was betrayed, He took bread. He broke it. And He said... This is my body, which is broken uh, for you. And he distributed it to the disciples. You are the visible body of Christ. And so it's not just discerning the sacrifice of Jesus, but it's discerning who we are in him. Do you know we are the only people The only, the only, the only mode, I would put it that way, the only mode by which, uh, Christ is known to the world. He sees, the world sees the image of Christ in us. And so it calls us to cherish one another as we honor Christ's body, which was broken for us. Then the Scripture says that Jesus took the cup. He took some wine, and he said, This is my blood which is shed for you. This is the new covenant in my blood. And the deal is sealed through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And each time we come to the the table, we are bearing testimony that our faith is in the Son of God. So I'm going to ask you, if you will, if you would stand. And uh, once you come and receive your portion, I'd like for you to return to your seats and hold the portion until we're all served, and then Pastor Rod is going to lead us in uh, a a conclusion.
5: Father, we thank you that your body was broken and your blood was spilled for our sins, and We lift up the bread to you that represents your broken body. And together we partake of that. And we say thank you, Jesus, that your body was broken, that we might be whole. Let us take together. And you lifted the cup. And you said that this represents my blood that will be spilled for you. The new covenant. So, Father, we... Receive this together and we drink of the cup and remember what you have done for us. Let us drink together. And Jesus, we say thank you. Thank you because there was a good Friday, there would be a resurrection Sunday. Thank you that because of Friday, Sunday would come. And so we praise you. We give you thanks for what you've done for us. And we remember Jesus' death. On the cross for the remission of our sins. In your name we pray. Amen.